I think it's having the right business plan. It's coming with a clear, concise pitch. It's having an idea of how you're going to approach things. If it's like, you know, I have this great product, this great idea, but I don't have the connections to be able to get there. Like, I'm not necessarily going to be able to provide those either. So you've got to show me that, hey, you've gone and had these, you know, discussions already. You've talked to distributors, you've done whatever it takes to kind of build the business as far as you can take it at this point with the resources that you've had at this point. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am really happy to be sitting here with Joe Tonis, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Catch Ventures. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Christy. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to chatting on a few different topics. Me too. Me too. It's always fun for me to have people from your side of the business on because it gives all of the founders that are listening something to think about and an understanding of what you guys are looking for. So do you want to just give us a little background on Catch Ventures first? Yeah, certainly. We started it, you know, co-founded by myself and my partner, Christian Dunham. We started back at the end of 2016. And initially, it was a way for the two of us to kind of get involved with some early stage food and beverage businesses where we could kind of help advise the entrepreneurs. We both came from a investment banking background, consumer and retail investment banking background, and spent a lot of time working with the large CPGs. And at this time, it was kind of the 2011 through 2016 type era where there was a lot of the better for you food movement was happening and there was just a lot of shift. And so we were seeing that happen and kind of seeing how the large CPG players were reacting to these changes. And so it became very interesting to us to get involved with some of these earlier stage businesses, both from an investment standpoint, but also to just being able to lend an advisory hand almost to these businesses to you know help them understand how the CPGs are thinking and, and you know working towards an exit and so on and so forth and building their business. And well, we've never represented that you know we've been entrepreneurs or have the ability to help build a company and get you into every retailer and so on and so forth. I think just all of the knowledge that we had picked up over those five or six years of being in and around the industry was valuable to entrepreneurs. So that's kind of how it started. Christian and I then started kind of writing our own personal checks into these businesses. And that's how Catch Ventures you know, kind of came to be. And then we had friends and family start asking us to get involved as well as they started hearing about what we were up to. And so we turned it from this advisory type platform into more of an investment syndicate platform. And that's how we've been operating since. And so we focus on consumer-facing businesses. We've evolved beyond food and beverage to focus on you know, other areas within consumer products. We've done some consumer services, some consumer technology, and you can see a full list of the portfolio companies on our website. Yeah, so that's kind of what it is. We still do some of that advisory work, especially with some of the earlier stage businesses that don't necessarily meet the requirements for us to be able to invest. We'll be on an advisory board or get some advisory shares or something like that to help the entrepreneurs. In every case where we do have an active dialogue with the entrepreneurs we partner with, we try to add value throughout the process and throughout our time as investors. We have had a couple of companies that have grown up in you know, what used to be a probably bi-weekly phone call with the founders and management team is now more like a quarterly catch-up call or something like that. But 
I think that means that we picked a winner and there's bigger, better VCs that are getting into these rounds. So yeah, so you know, for us, a typical check size is anywhere between 100,000 and 250,000. So certainly on the smaller end, we do act as a syndicate still. So we don't have a, a dedicated fund. We raise the capital from a network of about 750 investors for each deal. So there is a a marketing element for us. And, you know, there's benefits to being able to say that, you know, this round is being led by a founders fund or Kavu or something like that. Some of the household names in and around CPG because it helps our investor base say, hey, like if these big names are going in and Catch was able to get an allocation, you know, clearly there's something good going on here. So at a super high level, that's kind of, you know, Catch and, and how we came to be. You know, who knows what the future holds in terms of raising a dedicated fund. But for right now, you know, this is how we're kind of marching forward in terms of the opportunities that we're investing in and, and continue to review. Is that your goal to have a dedicated fund at some point? Yeah, I think it's certainly something that's on the front burner for us in a focus point. I think, you know, we'd like to see how things go. Many of the investments we're making are at a seed, you know, series A, typically yeah. latest stage. And so our investment horizon is, you know, five plus years typically. And I think for us, you know, we had always said at the onset when we started doing this that if we did want to go and raise a fund, we would like to be able to go to prospective LPs with actual returns and performance yeah. of our investments from a syndicate standpoint. And so it's a little bit early for us. You know, truth be told, we actually haven't had an exit yet. We've had a couple of, I shouldn't say a couple, we've had a number of, you know, up rounds and follow on investments and things like that. So that's obviously been super beneficial. But at the end of the day, We've been in the finance industry for a long time and a paper gain is just that. It's no more than a paper gain. So until you're actually showing your investors those returns and there is a true exit opportunity, you know, we're kind of we're saving those conversations to consider raising an actual dedicated fund until we're able to have, you know, knock on wood, hope a few exits and be able to point to those returns, performance, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk at all about any of the brands that you guys have invested in? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, there's a couple that I would call it in particular that it, you know we see as differentiators. You know, we were early investors in Urban Stems, which is one I always like to talk about, which kind of disrupted it. the supply chain and at-home flower delivery yes. game. And so that's one that we're really proud of. We were able to squeeze into that, and actually, that was one of the first deals we ever did where we syndicated out capital to others other than Christian and myself. And we invested in 2017. As part of their Series A, we were fortunate through our network to be able to get that allocation. And you know, that business has done exceptionally well. Such a great uh, brand. Such and, a great brand. Yeah, thank you. And so we're excited about it. You know, That's a brand that's had some opportunities for exits. There's certainly been a number of up rounds and additional investment. And they actually just did a, a Series C round earlier this year where we participated, took our pro rata, and then some, which was super exciting. So yeah, that's one that you know, is always uh, kind of a darling of ours in the portfolio. Another one that we're always excited to talk about is Low Sundays Tequila, which was kind of one of the original lifestyle brands moving into the alcohol beverage category. There's been a number since Low Sundays was founded. There were others before, but I think they really took an inverse approach to how an archaic industry had typically mm-hmm. operated. And that's what attracted us right from the get-go. And the two co-founders, you know, for us, it was really a bet on that. We fell in love with them day one. And we said, if there's two guys that can disrupt this industry, it's them. And you know, for us, it was a, a big step at the time when we first invested. It was the largest syndicate we'd ever pulled together at the time, which was 300000 So it was you know, bigger than what is still our typical check size. And you know, we've been super excited about that brand. And, you know, it's been, you know, it was challenging during a pandemic as yeah. you know, we had focused 
you know, most brands initially focus off-premise in the alcohol space to try to get distribution at retail. Again, we took the inverse approach, focuses more on on-premise. Yeah. And so that was a huge hit, obviously, during the pandemic. So I felt like the guys did a great job of getting through that. We have a, a national distribution agreement now with Southern Glazer Wine and Spirits. Last fall, we launched a RTD tequila seltzer line. You know, we have a lifestyle brand that you know has Instagram engagement at the absolute top of the industry as it relates mm-hmm. to beverage alcohol. And so there's something really unique. It, it's a super competitive space. Everybody and their brothers gotten into tequila, especially in the celebrity world. And I think that's yeah. one of the things that I've always loved is, you know, we've done this without celebrity attachment. I think there's nothing wrong with celebrity attachment. It's just very expensive to have a celebrity yes. come into your brand and it's very diluted. And then you have key man risk that if your celebrity yeah, does or right. says something that the that's rest right. of the world doesn't agree with, your brand gets tarred with that brush too. And then the last one I think I would mention among other examples I can give would be Ether Diamonds. So we actually invested in their seed round. We were kind of the first non-friends and family capital. Actually, we were that way with Low Sundays as well. But with Ether, we were the first non-friends and family capital towards the end of 2020. Ether captures carbon from the atmosphere and makes diamonds out of it. So there's, you know, it's starting as a jewelry business, but our thesis you know, going back to when we made the original investment was way beyond jewelry. There's diamonds that go into everything like your cell phone, medical devices, you name it. And so, you know, I think there's a real ripple effect from an ESG sustainability standpoint, such that if, you know, Apple is putting Ether diamonds in their cell phones, now they can say that the iPhone is more sustainable because it has a, you know, Ether diamond in it, which removes carbon. So it's super, super interesting business. We just invested again, actually, at the end of 2021. We had a, a big up round. We had an unsolicited Series A investment show up that was very sizable from Helena, which is one of the leading sustainability investors in the world. We had a couple of other you know, reputable names come into that, including Coastal Ventures. And you know, we're super proud of the company. It's still very early days, but I think having investors like that show up unsolicited tells yes. you what type of company it yeah. is. And so we're really excited about what the future has to hold. And you know, there's a lot of really unique things I could talk about any of our companies for a long period of time, but Ether in particular, just because there's there's so much IP, there's so much differentiation, there's so much ability to really change an industry. And we're super excited about it as investors. And you know, the founding team is, again, a super solid team. And, and I think that you know this very well, given the seat that you sit in. But when you're investing at this early stage, we like to say it's 75% of your investment is the founders that you're, mm-hmm. you're backing and mm-hmm. 25% is the product industry, everything else. And you, know, you can talk about having, as you and I have talked about before, an entrepreneur who wills their company to growth and distribution and everything else. And as long as you're doing that in a smart way and you don't have negative gross margins or something like that while you're doing yeah. it, you know, I think that that goes a long, long way in the seed and series A stage of investing in businesses. Yeah. So... That's a good transition to my question about what you look for when you decide to invest. And let's start with founders because that's obviously really important to you. We talked about this before. Just the energy of a great founder can propel a brand that could be very similar to one that doesn't have the energy of a great founder to success. And so I'm curious, when you talk about founders, what do you look for? Yeah, I think one of the things is vision that they have and what they want their company to be. I think anybody can sit there and say, hey, I want my company to be a $100 million company, but having the vision as to how they build it, and, and that's an ever-changing thing. I mean, you know, companies go through crazy evolutions. If a good company ever stuck to their game plan, 
you know, they probably wouldn't be a good company. <laughs> like they right, just have, you right. just have to pivot too many times. But yep. I think having that vision of knowing what you want to build, but also you know having the ability to adapt and pivot and make those types of changes, those are things that we look for. I think you know one of the biggest things that I've found, especially coming, this wasn't as much of an issue pre-pandemic, but I think the pandemic created so many entrepreneurs that yeah. you know now it's you've got to have somebody not just with the right head on their shoulders but knowing that they're real about what they're trying to build i think a lot of you know fortunately or unfortunately people have pipe dreams and they think that you know showing up with you know xyz i don't pick a category snack bar i was just um, going to say pick sudden, a bar category yeah, <laughs> the most is, oversaturated is category in history that's yeah that's just yeah. going to you know completely turn the industry upside down and you're going to be the next RX bar and so on and so forth. And it's not the case. And to use that as an example, I mean, we use all the all the time, you know, when investors ask us or people ask us about low Sundays, you know, is this going to be the next cost amigos? I tell them, absolutely not. I mean, you know, that was a once in a lifetime transaction in terms of valuation, structure, everything like that. I mean, RX bar, the exact same thing. And, you know, these large CPGs during that period of like 2010, 2011 through 2017, 18 yeah. timeframe, we're just willing to pay growth at any price. And I think that they've pulled back considerably. And, and we do have some intel on that to some extent where they're focused more on the existing brands that they have and building yeah. those brands. And they're not yeah. looking to just make the next acquisition. And so, you know, back to my point about being realistic, I think is the type of exit opportunity, right? I mean, if I see a deck where somebody's their seed round deck is talking about the exit opportunities when they reach $50 million of revenue that they're going to be acquired for $300 million and 6x revenue. I mean, I just kind of call BS on it right there yeah. because now you're thinking about having a payday. You're not thinking about building a company and being a good entrepreneur. Yeah. And you know that's another point too. That's a big difference. You know, For us as investors, we are looking about what the exit opportunity is because we don't return any value to our LPs without there being an exit. And while a business might generate $7 million of revenue and have, I don't know, five or 10% EBITDA margins in a high growth food and beverage category, that's phenomenal for the entrepreneur who's able to, you know, that's their life and that's their business. And they can continue to do that for, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. But if that exit opportunity doesn't come around for us as investors, yeah. you know, it's dead money after so many years, right? Your IRR yeah. just becomes way too small. And then, you know, you lose the value that your LPs see in you to be able to, you know, pick the right investments that are actually going to return them capital. So it's very hard to say when you invest at the seed and series A stage what the next five to seven years is going to hold. You know, I don't think any of us would be doing podcasts or anything else if we had the crystal ball. We'd, you know, be living life doing something uh, very, very different right now, probably. But anyways, I think, you know, you kind of get the point I'm trying to make. So yeah. you know, I think, you know, just being realistic is a big thing that we look for. And yeah, I think those are kind of some of the key highlights. I think, you know, having your ducks in a row too before you go to speak to investors is important. You know, I think that's you know, easier said than done. You know, the number of times that we've got, you know, a financial model that hasn't been built bottoms up and it's just like super high level. If you're telling me that, you know, your next three years are going to go from three million to five million to seven million to twelve million or whatever those numbers look like, and it's all even numbers throughout your entire presentation, like you're not thinking about it really to get to that point. And so it's really just, you know, kind of throwing a dart at a board and seeing what happens and what numbers you get. So you're just being thoughtful and making sure that the preparation is there and that you have a compelling story to tell. I mean, to go to your snack bar, go back to the snack bar category, 
prove to me that you truly have a point of differentiation from everything else on the market mm-hmm. and that you taste better and that you're going to have a reason that there's going to be a reason that consumers are going to switch to start buying you from what they're used to buying. You know, and I think you see that across a lot of consumer categories where generally speaking, I would say customer loyalty is at an all-time low. Gen Z and millennials are not our parents' generations where your mother only bought Skippy yep. peanut butter and yep. never anything else. And so, you know, stickiness of customers is very, very challenging. People trying to throw out LTV and CAC over, you know, short periods of time, like it only gets more expensive and it becomes very, very challenging. And I think you can see that across a number of sizable consumer companies that have, you know, gone public or something else over the last number of years. And you can see that with how valuations have compressed too. I think valuations have grown so significantly in the public or excuse me in the private markets because there's so much dry powder and so many new VC funds and everything else that you know you've got exorbitant valuations that can't be met when you try to go to the public markets or get acquired and then you end up having a down round or whatever yep. the case may be. And yep. you know it, it's creating you know situations where there was a, an article out a couple of weeks ago where Tiger Global and D1, some of the largest pre-IPO investors and public market investors in the world, are now coming down to do Series A and B rounds because they can't get the same multiple expansion yeah. that they were getting, or sorry, not expansion, but multiple of their invested capital doing the late stage growth rounds because the valuations are getting crushed as soon as they hit the public markets. So, so interesting. Yeah. So it's, you know, I think having that longer term vision of what you're hoping to do as an entrepreneur, and it's a tough line to walk because you want to prove that you're an entrepreneur that's here to build a business and not just look for a payday. But at the same time, if you're looking for, you know, investment from folks, you know, they've got to return capital to their shareholders too. So it's a balance that is a tough line to walk. You know, we talked a little bit about this. I just got back from Expo West and I didn't feel like there was any obvious like, oh, that's an interesting new category or that's something I've never, ever seen before. Do you feel like the things that you're looking at are more of the same? Or is there anything really interesting happening out there right now? Yeah, I think where we're finding interesting opportunities is off the cuff or off the fairway consumers, we like to put it. So I look at something we just invested in a business called Ellie Health, which I would argue is like the Peloton for chronic disease. It's a very different category. I would qualify that more as consumer services, consumer healthcare. You know, we were fortunate to invest in a round that included Google Ventures, Snapchat, and Bayer. Yeah, that's amazing. Company. So, you know, it was there's an absolute consumer element to the business, but it's not traditional CPG. And I think that for us, you know, that's kind of what we've been looking for of late. We have an interesting opportunity that we're reviewing right now that's in the again, I call it we call it, you know, consumer services, but it's kind of gamifying and creating rewards for referral hires. Mm-hmm. at companies. And you don't mm-hmm. even need to work at a company to be able to benefit from this. And so, you know, that's an interesting opportunity that we're looking at now. And I think for us, you know, using your example of Expo, there's a lot of me too out there right now mm-hmm. in the food and beverage category. And yeah. to the point of not being able to grow and get to the point of scale where you're going to be acquired or have some type of exit, whether that's private equity or whether that's a large CPG. You know, I think it's becoming tougher and tougher to do that. You're seeing a lot of brands become really, really great regional plays, but they don't get to that point of you know, 25, 30, 40 million dollars of revenue where you need to get to for a CPG to want to acquire you. And then for private equity to want to acquire you, you've got to be profitable to the point that their business model works, which is levering the company based on EBITDA and cash flows. 
So even if you are doing 30 or $40 million of revenue and middle market private equity would look to acquire you, if you're not doing that profitably or you're at a break-even level, it's going to be very difficult. And so you know that kind of growth at any price is becoming more challenging. And I think that's becoming more and more prevalent in, unfortunately, mostly the food and beverage space. And so it's, it is making it harder because of the fact that it's harder and harder to differentiate. And we're seeing that with, you know, you pointed this out when we were speaking the other day, and, you know, categories even like plant-based chicken, right? I mean, three years mm-hmm. ago, I unfortunately couldn't go to Expo this year, as you know, but the last time I was there was 2019. And there was maybe like four or five plant-based chicken companies, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, I didn't even know what the multiple is now, probably 100x. There were so yeah. many. And so many. you're fighting for shelf space. The slotting fees are just going to continue to go up. You know, the supply chain issues that everybody's experiencing, you know, not only in our industry or consumer, but across a number of industries. I put in an order for a new truck last February 2021, and I still don't have it yet because that there's art shortages. Wild. Um, and so it's not just consumer, but, you know, we've seen throughout, you know, companies we're involved with and otherwise, whether it be, you know, on the advisory side or, you know, true investments of ours, that, you know, margin compression has been exceptionally real supply chain issues. Like one of our favorite brands in the sparkling water space, you know, succumbed to margin pressures and being able to source cans and they just weren't able to continue forward. And, you know, I think that's going to become very, very real for a lot of companies over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, probably. And, you know, you've got to be well capitalized, but then you have the whole chicken and egg issue of being able to get, you know, the capital and prove that you're differentiated and you're going to be the one that it makes sense for these investors to come in on and ultimately get a real return on their capital. So do you think it's harder to start a brand now than it was in the space than it was five years ago? So I think it's easier to start a brand. Mm -hmm. I think it's much harder to grow a brand and turn it into a real company. I think everything over the last few years has made it easier. I mean, the number of pre-revenue idea stage businesses that we've seen over you know the last I don't know 12-ish months or so is probably at an all-time high if I look mm-hmm. at just the last 12 months relative to what we've been seeing since we started catch at the end of 2016. Yeah. And it's great. I love that all these people are trying to do it. But for us as investors, I would much rather, and this is kind of our philosophy at Catch Ventures, especially as I think about a category and I sorry to keep picking on food and beverage, but it's just no. it is what it is right now. Yeah. I would much rather invest in a series A or B round where at a 15 or $20 million valuation where I know that there's been a foundation built, I know that they can achieve and continue to, or they have achieved scale, can continue to you know grow from there. They know how to run a business from a margin standpoint, sourcing, supply chain, all those sorts of things, and know that the multiple of return is likely lower. But I de-risk myself considerably. Yeah. And from investing it, you know, at a seed stage where it's sub a million dollars of revenue or something like that. And so, you know, I think getting to three million dollars of revenue is I don't want to say it's easy, but it's not that hard if you're smart and you have the will and the strength to do it. You know, growing to be twenty-five million is very, very challenging yeah. and it's expensive. And I think the other thing that we're seeing a lot too right now is investors saying, like, hey, I need this, like I have this great opportunity, but I need capital to execute on it. And I get it. You know, like people don't come from, you know, not everybody comes from massive trust funds and whatever yeah. else. 
hard. You don't, a lot of people don't even have friends and family who have the ability to front them the capital or whatever the case yep. may be. But, you know, for me to sit here and say, hey, our $100,000 from Catch Ventures is going to move the needle enough for you to fund this purchase order, plus go and start marketing, plus start paying some employees, plus, 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 you know, our $100,000 is gone in like a month or two. Yeah, And so, you know, that's why for us, a lot of what we've been doing, like I gave the example of Ellie, you know, we're coming in on a round that's two to $3 million and our hundred thousand is small, relatively speaking, but we know that they're funded well enough to be able to execute on their plan yep. for the next 12 to yep. 18 months. Yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, the way that we've been thinking about it. And so it's challenging. And I mean, if we did have a fund, I think, you know, the diversified portfolio approach, you know, creates more opportunities to make investments. But when you don't have a dedicated fund and you have to sell all of your LPs to come into a deal, it's very, very different. So we're a lot more selective as we think about, you know, making those investments because we have to go out and raise the dollars every single time. So, you know, it's interesting the way that you approach it because it's almost like the way you're talking about it is so different than if you had a dedicated fund. You have to sell what you're thinking and why it's great a bunch of times to different people. And so that's kind of cool in a way because it really forces you to vet in a very, very deliberate, serious way every single thing that you're doing because you have to sell it to other people over Absolutely. and over again. Yeah. And we don't have the resources either. I mean, it's Christian and myself and you know we've done a great job of building our network, but every deal is diligence through us. We don't have a group of operating advisors like... Mm-hmm. I don't know, VMG has. And yep, you know, yep, VMG is yep. you know, an amazing CPG fund, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I've got friends that work there. and We would aspire to be that one day potentially, but we don't have that level of resources, right? We don't have an associate who can you know, focus on three or four portfolio companies right. and you know, spend two to three hours a day on each one. You know, that's just not how we operate. So you know, we have to be selective. We try to add value where we can. But you know, that's something I also caution to a lot of entrepreneurs. I think there's a lot of a lot of investors out there who say like, Hey, we can do this, we can do that. And, you know, we've got this massive network behind us that's going to take you from, you know, 500 doors at retail to 5,000 doors at retail. And I would caution investors like, you know, go and ask to speak to their other portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. Like, have they done this before? And we've done that a couple of times where we've made investments that like, can we talk to your other portfolio companies and, and see how you guys work with them and whatever else. And, I mean, we never represent that we're going to be able to do all these amazing things. Will we be there to, as a sounding board, strategic advisor, all those sorts of things? Absolutely, because we have eyes and ears in the marketplace, not only from what we've done at Catch, but you know what our quote unquote five jobs are, because Catch isn't full time, and so it puts us at a little bit of an informational advantage. But at the same, you know, we want to make sure that the entrepreneurs we partner with feel that back, and that yep. they feel that they're picking the right partner too. So. That's interesting. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, this is great. And I think it's interesting. What kind of advice would you give people who were considering starting up or were already in the early stages? What would you tell them that they had to do if they wanted to work with someone like you or just in general? What would you tell them to do so that they don't sort of bump into some of the, the big giant mistakes that other people do? Yeah, I think it's having the right business plan. It's coming with a clear, concise pitch. It's having an idea of how you're going to approach things. If it's like, you know, I have this great product, this great idea, but I don't have the connections to be able to get there. Like, I'm not necessarily going to be able to provide those either. So you've got to show me that, hey, you've gone and had these, you know, discussions already. You've talked to distributors, you've done whatever it takes to kind of 
build the business as far as you can take it at this point with the resources that you've had at this point. And so it ultimately does come down to that chicken and egg problem of really needing capital. But I think it's about having, like I said, your ducks in a row and every like a clear, concise game plan. And you know, you got to think about this as you're stepping into a war. And if you don't have some type of strategy, maybe that's a bad reference given what's going on in the world right now. But you've really got to be at a spot like you're fighting for shelf space if it's food and beverage, right? If you're fighting for yeah. some consumer services app, like you're fighting for downloads and you've got to have some level of IP because if you don't have IP, someone's just going to copy your app or I'm sure there's some other version already. And yeah. you know, if you have the classic you know, chart in your deck that says like, we have all the green checkboxes, but none of our competitors do, like, is that actually factual, right? Yeah. Like, don't try to tell me that you do all these things that none of your competitors do, but and if you do do that, that's amazing. But show me that, you know, that is true and that you truly are better than all of them and how you do add value to your users, customers, whatever the case may be. And so I think it's having the vision, it's being prepared to explain it and making an investor understand too what makes this compelling and how it's going to benefit them. Because just to sit here and say, oh, I, you know, everything would be really great if I just had $500,000. Mm-hmm. It's like the classic, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that. And um, (laughs) so you've got to, you know, I could give you that Mm $500,000. And so it's like, yeah, to me, it's really having that game plan in order and knowing your competitive landscape, why you're better, what makes you compelling to the consumer and the customer at the end of the day. Like if you are truly better for you than every other snack bar on the shelf to continue to pick on that category do you also taste better than every other snack bar on the shelf? Because you might have better nutritional value and everything else in your entire profile and makeup and whatever. But if you taste like sand, then people aren't going to buy it. So there's a lot of things. And I think it's knowing the audience you're going to chase after too and and having a good sense of that. Not everybody is going to want your product. Not everybody is going to switch from eating, you know, RX bars to, you know, whatever the new one is. So yeah. There's that aspect of it too, which I think, you know, all of that together with the repeating myself kind of goes back to, you know, being real, having the right game plan, having the will, having the right vision, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the basics, they got to get covered, right? Yeah. There's yeah. honestly like you need to have a differentiated product and offering, but to convince investors of that, it's blocking and tackling. Yeah. It is the basics. If you have the differentiated product and it is truly better, the rest of it truly is blocking and tackling. And, yeah. you know, it's just a matter of doing it the right way. And I mean, it's you're going to fail multiple times. You're going to talk to a ton of investors. You know, it is super competitive. There is a lot of dry powder, but it's also super competitive. We've even seen it from an investor standpoint, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. the number of companies that we've spoken to that we're interested in, and you know, there's other syndicates that are similar mm-hmm. to Pitch Ventures getting involved too. And you know, I'm sure there's overlapping LPs and everything else. Like, everything has become exceptionally more competitive. You know, I even think about something like AngelList, the number of deals that I used to get, I don't necessarily follow more syndicates than I did before, but the number of deals that hit my inbox in a given day now compared to 18 months ago is probably three to four X. Wow. AngelList obviously skews more towards technology and away from consumer, but I also think because it's just harder to raise consumer dollars at those earlier stages at the angel mm-hmm. stage because of all the reasons that we've talked about. So, yeah. you know, their consumer deal, when you're comparing a snack bar to a Y Combinator tech startup, I mean, you're sending it to the same investor base to use the angel list example, you know, one's going to be more in vogue than the other. Yep. 
Interesting. Well, I really appreciate all of your time and advice. And I'm sure that the people who are listening to this podcast will also. When I post this, I will post a blog as well. And if you want, I could put the name of the company and maybe your email if you want people to reach out to you if they've got really... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Always happy Great. to connect. Always happy to review new opportunities, whatever it may lead to. So we're Great. certainly appreciative of that. You know, Whoever it is on the listening end, we're excited to connect with it. That's Great. Thank you so much, Joe. That's awesome. It was really good. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.